So, you live in a house, or a flat, or an apartment, somewhere. Or even a hut, or a caravan, or whatever. You live somewhere, even a cave, just anywhere. Then along comes a bunch of crazies, who then proceed to either harm you, or take your land, and stuff by force. Or they just decide to join you and sit on what is your territory. It seems like a violation, right? Welcome to migrations and the endless tussle between people who move around, nomads maybe, and those who are settled. So what exactly is human migration? Human migration involves the movement of people from one place to another with the intention of settling permanently or temporarily at that new location. This movement can occur over long distances and from one country to another. But internal migration, i.e. within a country, is also possible. In fact, this is the dominant form of human migration globally, within the country. People may migrate as individuals or in family units or in large groups. There are actually four major forms of migration. Number one, via invasion. Number two, via conquest. Number three, via colonization. And number four, via emigration or immigration. Humans moving from their home due to a forced displacement, such as a natural disaster or civil war, may be described as a displaced person, or, if remaining in the home country, an internally displaced person. Someone who seeks a safe haven in another country can, if the reason for leaving the home country is political, religious, or some kind of victimization, actually make a formal application to that country, where refuge is sought and then typically described as an asylum seeker. If this application is successful, the person's legal status becomes that of refugee. These days, or at least since World War II, migration governance has become strongly associated with state sovereignty. Governments keep hold of the power to decide the entry and stay of non-nationals because migration directly affects some of the defining elements of a state, i.e. the sovereignty and efficacy of international borders. If you sneak across the international border, then you are considered an illegal immigrant and have little to no rights in the country migrated to. Those who go through the official government-sanctioned channels are considered legal migrants and have certain rights under their laws. An illegal can be a Bangladeshi national who walks across to India to work without a visa or other paperwork. A legal migrant can be an American who moves to England but applies in advance for legal status in the United Kingdom under UK laws. I want to throw some statistics at you now from the 2018 World Migration Report, and it has information detailing what they think are the numbers of moving peoples in the world between the years 1970 and 2019 at somewhat four or five year increments, starting with 1970. In 1970, around 84 million people moved. That sounds like a lot, but it's just 2.3% of the world population. In 1975, 90 million people was 2.2%. In 
1980, about 100 million people, that's 2.3% of the world population only. In 1985, about 113 million people, that's also just 2.3%. 1990, 150 million people. 1995, 161 million people. And 161 million people in 95 was just 2.8% of the world population. In the year 2000, it was about 173 million people, about 2.8% again. In 2005, 190 million people. 2010, 220 million people. Now 220 million people was 3.2% of the world population. In 2015, it was 250 million people, about 3.4% of the world population. And in 2019, 270 million people, that's 3.5% of the world population. Only 3.5% of the people on the planet migrated internationally in that year. That is low. In other words, 272 odd million people in 2015. That's it. Out of 7 billion, 272 out of 7 billion. Most of those people go to the country nearest to them physically. Interestingly, almost half of these migrants were women. Well, of course, the other half would be men, right? Which is one of the most significant migrant pattern changes in the last half century. Why? Because men used to do all the migrating prior. And these days, women were migrating alone with their family members and their community, not just the men. Okay, so per the 2020 World Migration Report, as of 2019, the top 10 immigration destinations were number one, the United States, number two, Germany, number three, Saudi Arabia, number four, the Russian Federation, number five, the United Kingdom, number six, the United Arab Emirates, number seven, France, number eight, Canada, number nine, Australia, and number 10, Italy. In the same year, the top countries of origin were number one, India, number two, Mexico, number three, China, number four, the Russian Federation, number five, Syria, number six, Bangladesh, number seven, Pakistan, number eight, the Philippines, number nine, Afghanistan, and number 10, Indonesia. As of the year 2013, the top 15 migration corridors, that was accounting for about 2 million migrants each, and by migration corridor, I mean between what countries, were at number one, between Mexico and the United States, number two, between the Russian Federation and the Ukraine, Number three, between Bangladesh and India. Number four, between Ukraine and the Russian Federation. Number five, between Kazakhstan and the Russian Federation. Number six, from China to the United States. Number seven, between the Russian Federation and Kazakhstan. Number eight, Afghanistan to Pakistan. Number nine, Afghanistan to Iran. Number 10, China to Hong Kong. Number 11, India to the United Arab Emirates. Number 12, the West Bank and Gaza to Jordan. Number 13, India to the United States. Number 14, India to Saudi Arabia. And number 15, the Philippines to the United States. Let's turn our attention now to the nomads, the original migrators. 
Nomadic movements are normally not regarded as migrations, as these movements are generally seasonal. There is no intention to settle in the new place, and only a few people have retained this form of lifestyle in modern times. Temporary movement for the purpose of travel, tourism, pilgrimages, or just a commute is also not regarded as a migration. In the absence of an intention to live and settle in the place visited is not a migration. A nomad, therefore, is a member of a community without a fixed habitation, which regularly moves to and from the same areas. Such groups include hunter-gatherers, pastoral nomads, i.e. people owning livestock, and tinkers or trader nomads. In the 20th century, population of nomadic pastoral tribes slowly decreased, reaching to just an estimated 30 or 40 million nomads in the world. Nomadism is also a lifestyle adapted to infertile regions such as the steppes, a tundra or ice and sand, where mobility is the most efficient strategy for exploiting scarce resources. For example, many groups living in the tundra are reindeer herders and are semi-extra nomadic, following forage for their animals. Most nomads travel in groups of families, bands or tribes. These groups are based on kinship and marriage ties or on formal agreements of cooperation. A council of adult males typically make most of the decisions, though some tribes actually have chieftains or chieftains. In the case of Mongolian nomads, a family moves typically twice a year. These two movements generally occur during the summer and the winter. The winter destination is usually located near the mountains in a valley and most families already have fixed winter locations. Their winter locations have shelter for animals and are not used by other families while they're out. In the summer, they move to a more open area that the animals can graze. Most nomads usually move in the same region and don't travel very far to a totally different region. Pastoral nomad societies usually do not have large populations. One such society, the Mongols, gave rise to the largest land empire in history. The Mongols originally consisted of loosely organized nomadic tribes in Mongolia, in Manchuria and Siberia. In the late 12th century, Genghis Khan united them and other nomadic tribes to found the Mongol Empire, which eventually stretched the length of Asia. Other than the Mongols, the Huns, who famously invaded the Roman Empire, the Turk warriors who attacked the Roman Byzantines, there were another famous bunch of nomads. It leads to that oh-so-eternal question. Nomadic versus settled. Well, who are the settled people? In my view, a settler is a person who has already migrated to an area and established a permanent residence there, often to colonize the area. This, dear listener, means you are a descendant of one of these people. And that is regardless of if you live in Kenya, India, the UK, Canada, the US, Australia, Iraq or Brazil or anywhere. Everyone. In ancient times, I mean ancient as in prehistory humans, were exclusively nomadic. Once you have ancient civilizations spring up here and there, such as Sumeria, Egypt and the Hittites or the Harappans and Chinese, you had a few settled empires mostly around cities. 
an urban-rural, or more to the point, an urban-nomadic divide began to exist. So everyone is historically a migrant or someone whose forebearers were nomadic migrants. Over the generations, later forebearers became settled. You might also want to make a note that settlers occupied where they occupied land, where the previous residents were long established. These were designated in the English language as indigenous peoples, i.e. peoples that lived in those lands for a longer period of time than you did, i.e. the natives, i.e. the aborigines, or in the Americas, i.e. the Indians. Personally, I have never understood this designation because everyone's forebearers migrated to some place at some time. Also, once an ex-migrant becomes settled, they become indigenous by themselves. So the cowboy becomes the Indian in about a generation or two. No individual has a right to land other than via use of force or the force of law. I do want to spend a bit of time talking about forced displacement. Forced displacement is an involuntary or coerced movement of a person or people away from their home or home region. The UNHCR, or United Nations High Commission on Refugees, defines forced displacement as follows. Displaced as a result of persecution, conflict, generalized violence, or human rights violations. There are two types of such displacement. One, displacement of risk, i.e. mostly conflict-induced displacement, deportations, and disaster-induced displacement. And number two, displacement of adaption, meaning associated with voluntary migration, development-induced displacement, and environment-induced displacement. Forced displacement may directly result from natural disasters and indirectly from the subsequent impact on infrastructure, food, and water access, things like local and economic systems. Displacement may be temporary or even permanent, depending on the scope of the disaster and the recovery capabilities of the area. Take, for example, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Resulting from a 9.1 earthquake off the coast of northern Sumatra, the Indian Ocean tsunami claimed over 220,000 lives, heavily damaging coastlines throughout the Indian Ocean area. As a result, over 1.7 million people were displaced, mostly from Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and India, and most of that was internal or domestic displacement. In 2011, you had the East African drought. Failed rains in Somalia, Kenya, and Ethiopia led to high livestock and crop losses, driving majority pastoral populations to surrounding areas in search of accessible food and water. In addition to seeking food and water, local populations' migration was motivated by, motivated even, by an inability to maintain traditional lifestyles. Then, there is displacement in Mexico due to cartel violence. Throughout Mexico, drug cartels, paramilitaries, and self-defense group are driving violence, internal and creating internal and external displacement. The total number of displaced persons between 2006 and 2012 was about 740,000. Oh, then there was the Vietnam War. Throughout the Vietnam War, and in the years preceding it, 
many populations were forced out of Vietnam and the surrounding countries as a result of armed conflict and or the persecution by their own governments, such as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam and the United States. This event is referred to as the Indochina Refugee Crisis, with millions displaced across Asia, Australia, Europe and North America. Let's not forget human trafficking and smuggling. Migrants displaced through deception or coercion with the purpose of their exploitation fall under this category. Due to its dodgy clandestine nature, the data on such type of forced migration are limited. A disparity also exists between the data for the male trafficking, such as for labour and agriculture, and female trafficking, such as for sex work or domestic service. Slavery. Throughout history, slavery has been a common problem. Every time you invade someone, many cities would end up surrendering and then the population may become slaves. There was a, there was a big slave trade in the Roman Empire, and indeed, the Arabs had a big slave trade too. And let's not forget the slave trade across the Atlantic. Ethnic cleansing is another one. This is the systematic forced removal of ethnic or religious groups from a given territory by a more powerful ethnic group with the intent of making it ethnically homogenous. Examples include the Catholic removal of European Protestants during the 16th to the 19th centuries, and the Holocaust, and the deportation of indigenous peoples from North America, etc., etc., One of the biggest displacements in history still remains the 1947 partition of India into India and Pakistan. Please go check out my episode 12 on the partition of India for more. Allow me a moment to introduce you to something called the world systems theory. It's a multidisciplinary approach to world history and to social change, which emphasizes the world system and not nation states as the primary, though not exclusive, unit of social analysis. In my view, this theory is hogwash. If you are not familiar with the term hogwash, well, it means I do not think too much of this concept. But anyway, I want to introduce you to it because it does present us with a unique way to look at human migration and it tries to theorize why a lot of perceived migration happens from poorer countries to the richer ones, typically in Europe. And I'm going to pick the bits that I think are relevant. Well, number one, world system theory looks at migration from a global perspective. It explains that interaction between different societies can be crucial to social change. Trade with one country, which causes economic decline in another, may create an incentive to migrate to a country with a more vibrant economy, i.e. jobs. Even after decolonization, the economic dependence of former colonies remained on the so-called old imperial countries. More than world systems theory, we need to look at the sociology of immigration. The sociology of immigration is an analysis of immigration, particularly with respect to race, ethnicity, social structure, and political policy. There are three typically mainstream sociological perspectives, and they all have fancy terms, so pay attention. Number one, symbolic interactionism. Number two, social conflict. 
And number three, structural functionism. So the first one is symbolic interactionism. This is a micro-level theory in which shared meanings, orientations, and assumptions form the basic motivations behind people's actions. This theory, as opposed to macro-sociology, focuses on how face-to-face interactions create the social world around us. Then there's social conflict theory. This is another sociological perspective that views society as an ongoing struggle for power and resources. This theory holds that competition among competing interests is a central function of society. Social conflict theorists believe that competition for power and resources leads to social change. A common fear is that immigration will alter the native culture of a nation. In the discipline of sociology, culture is defined as a set of beliefs, traditions and and practices. So a new group of people could change that. And you know what? Often they do. Then there is structural functionalism. In a sociological perspective, claiming that every society has certain structures that exist to perform certain essential functions, sociologists use structural functions to explain that immigration serves as a unifier for immigrant populations in a foreign country. If we look at migrations throughout history, you can go right back to the human out of Africa theory, which, if you think about it, was a big, huge migration in of itself. So let's, rather than looking through the broad historical perspective, pick something relatively recent to this podcast's presentation, i.e. from the Syrian Civil War. The Syrian Civil War that lasted between 2011 and 2019 led to what became known as the European Migrant Crisis in 2015. In total, European Union countries received over 630,000 asylum requests in 2014 and a further 1.2 million in 2015, among the highest since the aftermath of World War II. The most common nationalities of those requesting asylum in Europe in 2015 were Syrian at 46%, Afghan at 20% and Iraqi at 10%. The crisis was caused by some EU countries unwilling to accept mass refugees and to protect their borders, while other countries like Germany and Sweden wanted to accept the refugees because of the sheer number of people coming into the EU via North Africa and Turkey due to destabilization in Libya and Syria. Although that EU number sounds big, and it got a lot of press coverage, and yes, it is big, and it should have got a lot of press coverage, Turkey hosted 3.6 million people from Syria. Jordan, about 600,000 people who were registered, and a further 1 million people who were not registered. Lebanon hosts, or hosts still, about 1.5 million refugees from Syria. About 250,000 were in Iraq, who itself was going through its own civil war. Of the estimated 7 million people displaced remained within Syria. Only a small minority live in camps or collective shelters. Similarly, of the 8 million refugees, only about 10% live in refugee camps. Vast majority of people 
living are living in urban and rural areas in neighboring countries. So that kind of puts the EU experience into some kind of perspective. Here are some more migration stats for you from Syria. Again, remember, this is a forced migration. There were 2 million school-aged refugee children between the ages of 5 and 7 among the 5 million refugees registered in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq and Egypt by the end of 2016. About 1.1 million of those children have had access to either formal or non-formal education, including over 6,000 Palestinian refugees from Syria itself. Humanitarian aid during the Syrian civil war focused on basic needs like healthcare, education and providing jobs. Most of the burden remains on the host country, which, face a, which faces a stressed economy and export disruption, with the additional population living mostly outside of camps causing significant pressure on public and private infrastructure. Ladies and gentlemen, this stuff is real. Real not just for those who've had to move, but those who host the refugees. The sheer number of humans here is unbelievable. Lebanon's population, think about this, is just under 7 million people, yet they host 1.5 million people as refugees. Outside of forced migration, a lot of people move not for war, but because they want to. This can be legal or illegal. A popular destination for people from Latin America tends to be the United States. People may move, move for work, i.e. labor, or for family. This migration is known as immigration. The term immigration itself was not coined until the 17th century, referred to non-warlike population movements. When people cross national borders during their migration, they are called migrants or immigrants. The word actually migrant comes from the Latin wanderer. Anyhow, from the perspective of the destination country, at least, they're the wanderer. In contrast, from the perspective of the country which they leave, they are called emigrants or out-migrants. And while I'm on the topic of uh, immigrants, I will like to say that you may have come across the word expat or expatriates. Well, let me put it simply, an expatriate is the same as an immigrant. The reason you call an expatriate an expatriate is because they have gone from a rich Western country to a poorer country. An immigrant is gone from a poorer country to a richer country, typically a Western country. It's the same thing. It's just that the rich Westerners do not want to be called immigrants because it sounds less posh. Anyhow, immigrants are motivated to leave their former countries of citizenship or habitual residence for a variety of reasons. Could be anything. It could be a lack of local access to resources, something to do with economic prosperity or to find engaged and paid work. It's typically to improve their life or for family reunification. Sometimes it could even be retirement. Sometimes it could be climate related, etc., etc., etc. But the way immigration worked before 2010 and after 2010 are two very different models, at least in my humble opinion. Someone moving from India to the United Arab Emirates or to the United States of America before 
2010, would have little to low communication with their country of origin. Travel would have been hard and expensive. However, in the post-2010, i.e. the post-digital world, you never really leave your country of origin. The same Indian in the UAE or the USA never needs to cut ties. They can read local papers from their old city, communicate with their relatives multiple times in a day for nearly free, fly back to India when needed, and even in the host country have ample access to other Indians and to Indian culture. You see, now, unlike in 2000, 1990, 1980, 1880, 1580, the post-2010 era, you never really cut ties with the old place. You get to keep the best of all worlds. And more importantly, many migrants end up re-migrating to a third, fourth or fifth country or even back to their country of origin. Things have, well, things have moved on because technology has enabled it. Likewise, someone in India can make a decent informed decision about a move. They may not even need to move. They can work for the same company in India. They can see the sights of Rome and Paris without leaving their homes. Or they can make a trip and be satisfied with a holiday break versus a full migration. I am not saying that all migration will end. It never will. It has not since life showed up on the planet. Amphibians, mammals and birds all migrate. It's nature. Humans will too. Within countries and between countries, both legally and illegally, as a result of war or whatever. New technology means that you will have the human physical movement. But with modern technology, I think that the mental migration may never fully happen. The nature of migration, I think, will change because the mindset of the migrant and the host will have changed. So that tussle between the settled and the migrating peoples will always be there. But the nature of the migration will be different. Personally, I think and I know moving and living in many countries and cultures are fun and enriching experiences. I highly recommend it. Legally, of course. You have been listening to the Alternative History Podcast. Thank you so very much.